This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Jeff Sheehy, and I'm a member of the uh, governing board of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which is the uh, $3 billion state stem cell agency that was set up by Prop 71 in 2004. I've been on the board since uh, 2004 as an activist, person with HIV. I was appointed by John Burton. I'm also the director of communications at the AIDS Research Institute. And I want to thank you all for uh, coming tonight. I want to acknowledge some of the folks in the audience. I know Anne-Marie Delige is here. She's a fellow board member with me of the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. I also want to acknowledge the leadership of our three sponsors tonight, which is Paul Volberding, director of the AIDS Research Institute, and we have Warner Green, who's director of the Gladstone Institute for Virology and Immunology, and then, of course, the president of the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, Alan Trounsend, a great friend of mine, and we're so delighted to have him with us and his sacrifice being here from Australia. Um, I also want to uh, thank Matt Sharp, who really was the inspiration and guiding force in getting this together. And uh, a lot of you know him. He's a longtime activist in the community. And Kevin McCormack, the communications director at CIRM, also uh, very helpful pulling this together. So we're here to talk about a cure. And the idea of a cure has, for HIV-AIDS has generated a lot of attention recently. And individual cases have been reported, and we'll review those tonight. The great news is that these reports of cure are real. But the sobering news is that making a cure that's safe and available for most people with HIV remains a significant challenge, a huge challenge. But importantly, the proofs of concept that are provided by the case reports have, have made it possible for us to seriously think about and actually seriously work towards developing a cure that will one day work for most people with HIV. It, what part of what we're going to talk about tonight is the incredible research that's taking place, much of it here in the Bay Area. Tonight we'll hear, hear from the ma- three major um, HIV cure research collaboratories that are funded by the National Institutes of Health. Uh, these are the Delaney Collaboratories, named in honor of Martin Delaney, the founder of Project Inform. They're getting about $18 million a year, five-year projects, collaborations with industry and with academic research. We think uh, they're really going to take us close to where we need to go. There are various approaches embodied in each one of them that we'll hear about. In addition, we're going to hear about the research towards a cure that's been uh, funded by the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. We've been funding research towards a cure since around 2010. We're putting about $9 million a year into it. We're funding a lot of projects that are either in the clinic or near the clinic, and it's a, a really an amazing testament to the people of California that they had the wisdom and the foresight to, f- to vote, f- vote for Prop 71 and that we've been able to take those funds and really use them to accelerate progress towards the clinic. Our goal is to engage the, communicate, to engage the communi- community, initiate a dialogue, clear up some of the misconceptions, tamp down some of the hype because some of the hype has been absolutely crazy and I just want to acknowledge Supervisor Scott Weiner and thank him for coming tonight Uh, um, but um, I also want to note that we can be realistically hopeful that there's solid grounds for pragmatic optimism 
And uh, I want to bring up, I have, my, I have one slide, and uh, this is Jeff Getty. I don't know how many of you guys remember, how many of you folks remember Jeff. Yeah. He passed in 2006. He was after a long, long battle. He was a mentor of mine, a great friend of mine and Matt's and many of the folks in the room. And uh, back in the ACT UP Golden Gate days. And I bring him up because he went, he, he, Jeff underwent this really extraordinary, daring experiment in 1995, which some of you may remember, being transplanted with blood-forming stem cells, somatopoietic stem cells, from a baboon in an attempt to create uh, in his body an immune system that resists HIV. And I mention this because this was a very early cure experiment, and Jeff... Uh, I mentioned this early cure experiment in Jeff because the active engagement of the community can speed cure research forward. And I want to note that we're already seeing the same spirit of sacrifice, altruism, and and activism in individuals who, like Jeff, are taking part in these early cure experiments without the expectation of receiving any benefit for themselves other than trying to move the research forward. I know a lot of these projects that we're talking about tonight are actively uh, recruiting people for trials. And we really can't promise a cure at this point, but the participation of the community takes us so much closer towards a cure so much faster. And I really want to salute the courage and activism and, 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 and the audacity of these individuals who are willing to get in these trials at this point. So I want to thank you for coming tonight to learn, question, and discuss the possibility of a cure for HIV. And I would like to now introduce Dr. Maria Milan. She's medical officer for CIRM, and she will be the moderator tonight. Good evening. It's wonderful to see everybody here this evening. Before I turn you over to our uh, lineup of very distinguished speakers and an amazing program that's planned for you this evening, I'd just like to go over some uh, the housekeeping items um, to make the our two hours together go smoothly. Um, you will all have received a blue packet that has within it uh, a list of biosketches for the speakers for this evening. So the introductions will be r- relatively brief. Please refer to those for um, background information on the accomplishments and the background of these speakers. In addition, these speakers will have um, affiliations not only with um, academic institutions, but some of the collaboratories and efforts that were mentioned um, by Jeff Sheehy. And some of that information is also in the packet. And there are, is contact information for, um, for you if you would like to find out more about those organizations and the work that they're doing there. Um, so the, after the um, speakers um, present their uh, talks. What we're going to have is a a panel discussion, and uh, the speakers, as well as others, including Matt Sharp, who's on the audience, will join the panel. Um, there, in each of your packets, there is an index card. Please, throughout the um, throughout the session, feel free to write questions there. If there are specific questions to one of the speakers, please indicate that. We'll collect those cards. And in addition to the, to the um, opening discussion that the panel will engage in, we will address all of those questions. Um, if there are any questions even related to um, terminology or aspects of the talk that aren't clear, please feel free to um, jot those down and we'll collect them. 
So without um, further delay, I'd like to introduce Dr. Steve Deeks from UCSF, um, who is a principal investigator for the DARE Collaboratory. Dr. Deeks. So thank you. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I think any discussion on cure has to start off with a, with a discussion on the Berlin patient. And um, uh, here's a picture of Mr. Timothy Brown there on the right and his doctor, Gerald Hooder, um, who about five years ago, Timothy presented with, um, I think it was lymphoma, um, and uh, required a, 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 a bone marrow transplant. And his doctor in Germany was clever enough to find a donor who was naturally resistant to HIV. The donor had C, uh, T cells, which lacked CCR5, um, and hence HIV could not enter into, his, into those T cells. And so basically what they did is they rebuilt an immune system in Timothy that was resistant to HIV. Okay? Now, a couple things from this story I think are interesting to point out. Number one, uh, uh, Timothy moved to San Francisco and has since participated in a series of very intensive studies in our group, lymph node biopsies, colonoscopies, lumbar punctures, um, anything we actually asked him to do, he participated in. And I mentioned that because we learned a tremendous amount because of that participation. And he reminds me very much of Jeff Getty. And I knew Jeff back in 1995, 1996, and they were both, I would have to say the word fierce. They were fiercely committed to innovative clinical research and were willing to make any commitment uh, as long as it advanced the cause. And I've often thought about Timothy and Jeff in the same way. So I'm just acknowledging that up here. Timothy is, um, uh, has been uh, tremendously helpful. And what we learned is basically, although there's some nuances, that transplant six years ago cured Mr. Brown. He is definitely now cured of HIV infection. Um, Next slide. So, and, and we continue to learn a lot from that case, and there have been some efforts to try to redo this again. It's a, it's a complicated issue, but I'm hoping that we'll see this again in, in the future in terms of that approach. Another case, which I'm sure everybody in this room has heard about, which um, uh, is, uh, has some controversy surrounded, is a so-called Mississippi baby. Now, um, this is an a, uh, infant that was born... Uh, in Mississippi to a mom who had a viral load of about 20,000, so she had, you know, significant HIV disease. The delivery was so complicated that the obstetrician in Mississippi was really worried that the baby had been infected and did something that people generally don't do. She started standard combination regimen on day one of birth. Um, which is really not the standard of care and which was a bit of a heroic move on her part. And subsequent to that, their group was able to prove that the baby was in fact infected at birth. The nature of that infection is not entirely known, but it's clear that the baby was infected. She, was, she actually had HIV, and she went on standard regimen, as shown here, and she was on it for about um, uh, you know, several months, and then the mom disappeared with the baby, uh, details I'm not entirely sure about. Uh, the baby stopped antiretroviral drugs. They tracked down the kid a couple years later, and she's HIV negative. No antibody, no virus. Um, and we're still trying to figure out what exactly happened. It's my personal opinion that in the baby, what the, what the treatment did here was, got, was initially so early that it prevented the virus from 
getting into some of the long-lived reservoirs. So to a certain extent, treatment here was preventing the establishment of, of, of lifelong infection rather than reversing it, as had happened in Timothy uh, Brown's case. But still, it's clear evidence of a cure, okay? So that's two cures. Next slide. And then we get to a whole other series of potential cures. And I, I, my goal here is to generate some optimism and to point out, I think, where, where there are some holes in the, in the literature, but, but to actually, I think, to instill in people in this room that, that curing HIV is indeed possible. Uh, the next uh, uh, study, again, without, uh, has a, a similar amount of controversy around it, is a so-called Visconti cohort. Now, these are 14 people living in France who... Um, started therapy pretty early, you know, two or three months into their infection on average. So not, the, not like the baby case, not on day one. So two or three months in their infection. So they had established infection, no question about it. Um, and these 14 individuals went on long-term, relatively long-term therapy, about four or five years, and stopped drugs. And nothing happened. Um, it, the virus did not rebound. Now... The thing about the study you have to realize is that, that what the French team did is they went back in their national database and picked the winners, okay? So they, they found people who did well. Nine out of ten people who stopped drugs in this kind of setting did not do well. So this did not cure the vast majority of people. But still, there are 14 people who appeared to go on very early therapy, stay on it for a while, stop drugs, and the virus did not rebound. And more interestingly, from my perspective, when, you, when they start to try to figure out what exactly was happening, these guys look nothing like the typical quote-unquote elite controllers, people who naturally control virus on their own. They're very different immunologically. Um, and from my perspective, most interestingly, in the absence of therapy, the amount of virus in the, in the, in the tissues has to continue to decline over time. You never see that even in elite controllers. So I'm, again, I look at things from an optimist perspective, and I say, well, okay, there's 14 more potential cures. Next slide. Then comes, um, you know, the, uh, a lot of work that's happening in the vaccine world. Okay, now the vac- there, there have been over the past 10, 15 years dozens and dozens of studies in which we've taken people on long-term therapy and we've given them an HIV vaccine with an idea to build up their immune system so that when you stop drugs the immune system will control the virus. The vast majority of these studies showed no effect, and some showed harm. But there has been a series, and, 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 and not a lot of people agree with me on this particular slide, but I'm, again, looking at it from a perspective of an optimist. But there are now these vaccines in which you actually take a certain cell from the body called a dendritic cell, and you prime it with the patient's own virus, give it back, and these cells, which are central to the immune system, they direct T cells to what to do. Um, in a handful of the, in a couple of these patients who've actually done this, they've been able to stop drugs and the virus has not rebounded for years now. Um, and so to a certain extent, they also sort of, I think, uh, might um, uh, count as a cure. I don't have the slide here, but there are two other ones I want to talk about. And, and these are the Boston cases. Okay, so again, this is a, a, another emerging story. But there are two patients in Boston who, like Timothy Brown, had a cancer that required a stem cell transplant. But unlike Timothy Brown, what happened in these Boston cases is they got cells from a routine donor, so not, not HIV-resistant donor, and the, and the cells were transplanted. They took, 
And under the cover of very effective therapy, those new cells, which had no HIV in it, slowly grew, took over the immune system, and crowded out the pre-existing cells. So at the end of the day, uh, it appears, we're not 100% sure yet, that what, what happened in this case is that they rebuilt an immune system with the donor's cells um, and just waited until all the old cells died off, and these two people might be cured. So that's um, so. If you're keeping track, that's that's we're definitely in the twenty range here of potential cures. Each of them with their own issues. But the one thing that's critical about all these, next slide. One thing that's critical about all these is that they're not easily, they don't pertain to your typical person, right? They're either transplants, babies delivered, treated at birth, or rare people started very early in therapy. Um, and so what we really would like to be able to do is to come up with a way to cure the global population. And the question of have we made progress there? And I'm going to just, just show two studies, okay? And this is, we're just at the beginning in, in terms of trying to cure your typical person on long-term therapy. But I've got to talk about the monkey studies that everyone heard about last week. So this is, um, this is a study uh, in which people, uh, two, a bunch of monkeys were given a vaccine with CMV. CMV is a very powerful virus. It just turns on the immune system in a very potent way. And what happened here is that the CMV was engineered to deliver HIV proteins or SIV proteins in the monkeys. And um, these animals had a whopping immune response that we don't typically see with vaccines, in part due to the CMV aspect of it. And these monkeys actually appeared to have cured their infection. Um, and, um, and so there's a, and this kind of cure, Right, this would be an injection in the arm uh, of anybody, and so this is the kind of stuff that is potentially, um, if we can get this into the into humans, it's going to take a few years, might be more applicable to everybody else. One last comment: I don't want to show the slide; the details get a little dense, but let me just uh, mention it. Um, the other area of strong interest right now in terms of cure work is the concept of shock and kill, and I would just say that we. Um, this is a, a, an approach where you take people on long-term therapy and you shock the virus out of the system, right? You give them these powerful drugs that pushes the virus out of its hiding place and then hope the immune system, perhaps a CMV-vaccinated person, will have the immune system that will kill those cells. And um, we are, I think, may, we have made baby steps in doing that. And I think that where we are in terms of reversing, the, getting the virus out of the reservoir is very similar to where Paul Volbering was back in the late 1980s when he was leading efforts with AZT. AZT by itself didn't do much, probably caused lots of harm, um, well, some harm, but not much benefit. And, but it was the cornerstone of the three-drug regimen about a decade later. And, and I think that's where that, that this, the drugs that we're doing now in all the clinical trials here in San Francisco aimed at shocking the virus are those first steps. So that's my, that's an optimistic perspective on where things are and where things are going. And with that, I'm going to turn it over uh, to my colleague, Warner Green, the director at the Gladstone Institute here in, in, uh, uh, in San Francisco and a professor at UCSF and an expert on the virology. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much for coming this evening. Um, I was sitting there thinking about my experiences in HIV research began in the summer of 1981, seeing what was then the first case of AIDS at the National Institutes of Health. I then fast-forwarded 10 years, coming to San Francisco, and I remember my first attending on the wards at SFGH 
Every single patient I had that month had uh, AIDS. Every single patient. And uh, now, uh, more recently, my work in Africa uh, has impressed me that uh, this problem is not over at all. Uh, the, we are faced with a huge epidemic. We're running out of money, um, and a cure is really essential um, uh, if we're going to effectively deal with this virus on an international level. So um, I would like to talk about the shock and kill strategy. Could you give me the first slide? Go back, all the way back to the beginning of the presentation. Okay, next slide. So the, uh, the CARE Collaboratory, which I'm here representing, is a national collaboratory composed of 20 investigators who are at 12 different institutions across uh, uh, the country, and uh, each of them are depicted here. Next slide. The 20 in investigators, I'm sure you know the names of some of these, are, are shown here. Uh, UNC serves as the home to the collaborator, and David Margolis is the PI uh, of the grant. Um, but it's a remarkable collection of scientists who've come together to really try and tackle this problem um, in a coordinated and systematic uh, manner. Next slide. Our strategy is, uh, as Steve was referring to you, shock and kill. Um, that is our, 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 our primary approach. The idea is to come up with a cure cocktail that would shock the virus out of its transcriptional slumber within resting uh, memory CD4 T cells. Once the virus is produced, uh, you, would be, uh, you would be giving this cocktail under the cover of antiretroviral therapy to prevent viral spread. But then, hopefully, uh, those virus-producing cells will spontaneously die, or perhaps you'll have to engineer an approach to, to induce them uh, to die. But that is the shock-and-kill strategy. Next slide. Um, so it will certainly require, you know, we don't have a single drug that can do this. There's not a single compound. It's going to require, and as Steve's making the point that, uh, we ha might have one drug, like the AZT equivalent of combination antiretroviral therapy, but how can we add to that? How can we create the cocktail that's going to be effective? Next slide. We need a cocktail that will induce the virus without fully activating the T cell, because we don't want a cytokine storm. We don't want a toxic shock type of syndrome. So we're looking for combinations that can rally the virus, but not create a, a huge storm uh, of cytokine release. Now, as a part of the CARE Collaboratory, we have recently completed a 2.9 million compound screen to identify new latent HIV activating agents. Uh, this was done at Merck. In fact, the collaboratories involved not only academic investigators, but also uh, uh, Daria Hazuda and her colleagues at, at Merck. I believe Daria is also involved with the uh, DARE Collaboratory. Now, out of this screen of 2.9 million compounds, we got what are called histone deacetylase inhibitors. Now, those are inhibitors that had long been known to, to activate the virus, drugs like varinostat, but there were several other types of HDAC inhibitors. So 16.1% of the hits were those, so perhaps not surprising. But the other class of inhibitors that came out of this screen are farnesyl transferase inhibitors. These are, uh, farnesyl transferases are enzymes that add little pieces of the little lipids to the ends of proteins that alter their function. Next slide, please. Now, interestingly, along this idea of trying to build toward a combination therapy, 
You can take an HDAC inhibitor like varinostat and a farnesyl transferase inhibitor, each of which alone have a very small effect, small but measurable, but when you combine them, you get synergistic activation of the virus. So that's the kind of step forward. That's the kind of cocktail that we're looking for. Now, we don't know whether HDAC inhibitors and farnesyl transferase inhibitors will ultimately be in the, in the cocktail, uh, the cure cocktail. But this, these are kind of the promising leads that, that are emerging now from the collaboratory's efforts. Next slide, please. Um, now, I, I entitled this slide, Houston, We Have a Problem. So, shock and kill. Well, it's clear we can shock, but do we kill? Uh, these are studies that have recently been re or were reported uh, in 2012 from Bob Silicano's laboratory, a member of the CARE Collaboratory. Now, if you fully stimulate a latently infected T cell, uh, as, as shown here with antibodies, uh, with a particular combination of antibodies, those cells will both produce the virus and they will die. But now let's stimulate them with varinostat, the HDAC inhibitor. Next slide, please. And, in fact, the surprising fact was they'll start producing virus, but they don't die. So we shock them, but there's no, there's no kill. That's the problem uh, in that the cells continue to live and presumably can retreat. That, that doesn't help us get to the cure if, this, if we rally the virus, but the host cell doesn't die. So this next slide suggests that we may need to com combine this type of shock therapy with a T-cell HIV vaccine that will elicit the cytotoxic T-cells to then execute the killing function. So it makes the therapeutic modality, the therapeutic approach more complex. But we're, so we're learning. We're learning a, a point by point, but it, at each step we're learning that it's a little more complicated than we thought it was. Next slide. And uh, the final thing is that maybe we can't shock all the viruses. Not only can't we kill them, maybe we can't shock them in the first place. And indeed, we're now learning that the latent reservoir is larger than we uh, originally, uh, more, and more complex than we originally thought. This study will appear in Cell. It may already be out this week. Uh, next slide. From the Silicono Laboratory as well. What Bob's laboratory has found is in the small red circle there, that's the known reservoir of inducible virus in memory CD4 T cells. What Bob's laboratory has found is that shown uh, in the blue that there is an, uh, there's a further reservoir of the virus in these cells that when you shock them, they don't come to life. They remain latent. In fact, but that, that many of these viruses are fully functional. Uh, if you sequence them, there, there, there are no mutations. They can, their LTRs are fine. And, in fact, if you, if you recreate those viruses and stimulate them, they will activate. And, in fact, if you go back in and use stimuli, other stimuli, you can stimulate these viruses under certain conditions. So, in other words, not every shock... Uh, activates every latent virus. And now we know, in fact, next slide, that this reservoir, if you count these new, this new reservoir of intact but non-induced viruses, the reservoir is at least 60-fold larger than we originally appreciated it to be. So problems with killing, problems with shocking, but we're learning. We're learning, taking steady steps forward. Next slide. 
And the final thing is a, a, a concept that Mike may uh, also address, and that is the potential role of chronic inflammation and whether or not inflammation, chronic inflammation and, and CD4 T-cell depletion, these are kind of two signature processes that occur in AIDS. And the question is, is that chronic inflammation in any way involved in driving or maintaining the latent reservoir? And if so, could we use anti-inflammatories to shrink the reservoir, and would they become part of a cure cocktail? Next slide. What we know now, uh, recently, studies from my own laboratory have shown that the vast majority of CD4 T cells dying during HIV infection are not productively infected with the virus, but rather they're abortively infected with the virus. And indeed, it's not the virus that's killing the cell. It's a host immune response against the virus that, that causes the CD4 T cell death. So in fact, most CD4 T cells die as a, as a matter of suicide rather than a murder in the case of HIV infection. But and in fact, the way they die is they die a very inflammatory form of cell death. They rupture their cytoplasmic contents out into the extracellular space. Intense inflammation. That inflammation, in turn, attracts, releases chemokines and other inflammatory mediators that attract new cells to come for repeated rounds of abortive infection, death, inflammation. So it becomes a vicious, vicious cycle. Now, could that chronic inflammation play any role in the latent reservoir? This is a question. It's a hypothesis that we're posing. Next slide. So it's possible that one of the, one of the mediators released during the, when, the, when these infected T cells or these abortively infected T cells lice and, and break down is IL-1 beta. IL-1 beta can, for example, act on the macrophage to produce another cytokine, IL-15, which might cause homeostatic proliferation of the latent reservoir keeping the reservoir large and robust. That's a, that's a, it's an idea. So, uh, so next slide. So in fact, might it be possible if we interrupted this vicious HIV pathogenesis cycle with inhibitors uh, that would block the death of the cell by this pathway called pyrotosis, might we also, with, anti, with these types of inhibitors, might we also attack the latent reservoir and would caspase one inhibitors become part of a of a of a cure cocktail? It's an idea that, that we're we're trying to test now, but I am intrigued by this this connection between chronic inflammation and and, and cure. Next slide. That may be my last slide. So um, those are I've, so what I've tried to to emphasize is that there are challenges in the field that we're but we're learning at each step. Uh, it's more complex. We're making, I agree with Steve, we're taking the, 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 the smallest of steps toward finding those magical combinations uh, that will allow a truly effective shock and, 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 and kill strategy. Um, stay tuned. Um, I think the, the, the collaboratories are working effectively, and, and we hope to make uh, significant progress. So I'll stop there and introduce... Um, uh, the leader of, a, of the third collaboratory, Hans-Peter Kim, who is the Jose Carreras and E. Donald Thomas Endowed uh, Chair for Cancer Research and Associate Director of Transplantation Biology at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much. I would also like to thank the organizers for inviting me to uh, present our collaboratory here today. Um, so i uh, probably just go to the next slide right away. So our collaboratory, uh, Defeat HIV, um, Keith, Jerome, and I are the uh, PIs of uh, the collaboratory. And uh, this is uh, the group of the uh, different um, PIs and pro program project of the different programs and projects of the collaboratory. Um, just to point out a few, Shulak Hugh, uh, Jim Mullins uh, from the University of Washington. Our industry partner is uh, Sangamo, Phil Gregory, then Seattle Children's with Ann Wolfrey, uh, also Fred Hutch, and then we also have John Rossi from City of Hope uh, uh, on the team and Tay Wook uh, from the National Institutes of Health and then also Steve Terosa and um, uh, a number of other people from Children's and uh, from City of Hope and the University of Washington. Next slide. <clears throat> so what are we doing? I was following the instructions uh, on the handout and that's why these titles. So what is, what is, uh, is it what we're doing? Next so our collaboratory is mainly focusing on hematopoietic stem cell transplantation as a platform for purging the latent reservoir. And you've already heard about uh, the different uh, transplant uh, um, studies that have been done, uh, Timothy Brown in the Boston uh, cases. Next. Uh, we also focus on genetic modification of blood stem cells uh, to make them resistant to HIV with different uh, techniques and mechanisms. And then last, and one um, a particular emphasis of our collaboratory is also to disrupt the integrated um, HIV uh, virus. Next. So you've already heard the story of Timothy Brown, and I, again, also have to thank Timothy to really come out and be so open. He just visited us, uh, actually, uh, this summer, and it was a wonderful visit. Uh, he's been a, tr tr a tremendous resource, um, and also in terms of um, uh, communicating the importance of uh, HIV research. So as you've already heard, now, see, he had HIV and acute myelogenous leukemia, and he actually had chemotherapy and didn't respond, so he really needed a bone marrow transplant to cure his disease. Now, he was lucky to have had this uh, CCR5 negative uh, donor and then received chemotherapy and radiotherapy uh, as the conditioning and then the allogeneic then the CCR5 negative uh, the graft. And again, as you've heard, he's now cured uh, six years later. Next slide. So what is allogeneic cell transplantation? So my slides are fairly simple. I just want to walk you through what's involved in such a transplant. So typically, Next. What we do is we can now take from the donor the marrow cells, either from the bone marrow or simply you now mobilize these cells into the blood and take um, then the stem cells from the peripheral blood. We can then simply take those cells and infuse it into the patient. Obviously, these cells have to be matched, um, so not... Um, only about 40 to 50 percent of patients will have such a donor, um, um, a related donor, probably only 30 percent. However, for unrelated donors, we can, at least uh, uh, at our place, we can probably get uh, donors in about 60 to 80 percent of the cases. And then uh, before the infusion of these donor cells, allogeneic donor cells, patients uh, need to undergo conditioning with chemotherapy um, or with uh, radiation. Now, this sounds all very simple and uh, is doable, and we've made a lot of progress for patients with malignancies, with hematologic malignancies, leukemia and lymphoma, to really reduce the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy. But 
There are still significant problems and side effects with such a transplant from a different donor, uh, mainly graft-versus-host disease. And this can really kill patients and, uh, and can also contribute to significant um, uh, morbidity. So it can affect the skin, gut, and liver, and as I mentioned, can be very severe. So patients have to be on, on immunosuppressive uh, treatment for many, many years uh, in some cases, which will obviously then lead to another significant side effect is additional infection infectious disease complications. Um, and then there can also be complications from the conditioning regimen. So while this can cure patients, there's still a number of significant side effects involved with this treatment. And uh, obviously, we and others are working on how to finesse this uh, treatment to potentially make it more applicable to um, um, patients with HIV. Next. So to, if patients don't have such an allergenic donor, um, and this is when we sort of started our collaboratory, we, saw, we thought, well, there's not as many patients with a CCR5 negative donor. Only 1% uh, of people have such a CCR5 uh, negative um, marrow or CCR5 negative cells. So what can we do? We could simply take the patient's own cells, make those cells resistant. And that's exactly what's shown here. So when we take then the patient, patient's own cells, exactly the same slide, uh, we take the marrow or the peripheral blood and then uh, take those cells, and this is what we can do. And there's been a lot of progress now isolating these stem cells from patients or T cells. And now what we can do is we can take these cells and genetically modify these cells. And this is a big part of our collaboratory uh, with different investigators in Seattle. We can use viral vectors or we can use uh, newer technology with nucleases to introduce uh, genes, or to specifically uh, introduce genes in particular uh, loci uh, here in, in the chromosomes to introduce an HIV resistance gene, very specifically uh, in, in, in a chromosome, or disrupt that CCR5 gene that you've just heard about, the entry door for HIV. So we can specifically disrupt this, this gene uh, in, in uh, the patient's own cells. And that's a big part of our collaboratory, what we focus on. And then we can simply return these cells to the patient and then reinfuse the cells after some conditioning. And then after that, we will obviously see that this gene, the HIV-resistant gene or the disrupted stem cell, will then repopulate the entire um, blood cells. And if you use stem cells, obviously, it's not only the stem cell, it's not only the T cells, it will be all the, the myeloid and lymphoid cells in all the blood lineages. So the advantage was, would be uh, in such a system that the patient has really an immune, uh, an immune and blood system that is resistant to HIV. Now, if we do this, there may still be... Uh, virus left in the reservoir uh, in the patient if we use an autologous um, setup. And in this, um, in this uh, setting, then, uh, this is where the research by Keith Jerome's, Jerome comes in. Uh, he's working on nucleases to destroy the integrated HIV uh, DNA. So all these techniques are available now. We can use different nucleases to really go into the cell and the, uh, go down to the chromosome and go in and really disrupt like a scissor almost, next slide, like a scissor, uh, particular uh, sequences in the DNA, like HIV, integrated HIV, and cut out or cut up the HIV genome with all these different uh, nucleases that are now available. Um, 
if you just okay <laughs> so go back one more slide so this is a big part of the Seattle uh, of our um, collaboratory in Seattle that we work with different uh, either zinc fingers or homing in the nucleases or megatals fusion proteins of these different nucleases to either modify the CCR5 gene uh, the, the entry way for the HIV or to go into the cell and cut up um, HIV uh, in the cells okay so we have a number of clinical studies uh, in Seattle to really study uh, the effect of transplantation. So we have ongoing uh, autologous transplantation studies for the treatment of lymphoma for patients with HIV. We also have allogeneic transplantation studies for lymphoma and for patients with lymphoma and leukemia and HIV. Uh, we also very soon uh, open studies using autologous transplantation with HIV-resistant cells uh, and then uh, chemotherapy in patients undergoing chemotherapy for lymphoma and HIV. However, all these studies, what you see right now here, is in patients with HIV and a malignant uh, disease like lymphoma or uh, leukemia. Now, future studies, we also plan on looking into purging T cells with antibody therapy or purging CD4 cells with targeted radioimmunotherapy. We have a large group in Seattle that uh, has uh, developed uh, novel targeted radioimmunotherapy protocols uh, in patients with malignancies, and they can also be targeted specifically to CD4 cells. Okay? So, where are we? So, this is, uh, where I think, where we are. I do think with allogeneic transplantation, we can probably cure um, HIV. I think the allogeneic cells are very powerful. They can eradicate the, the reservoir cells where the virus can hide out. We know this from cancer very well. The reason we do an allogeneic transplantation is because these allogeneic cells with a, this effect called graft versus leukemia, or graft versus lymphoma effect. So these donor cells can't find even a few malignant cells in the body and eradicate those cells. So that graft versus host or graft versus leukemia or graft versus HIV effect, I think, is very powerful. However, again, there's, as I already pointed out, there are significant side effects involved still. Um, and we still don't know what exactly happened in these patients. So was, it, was the CCR5 neg negativity important? Was it critical for, in the case of the Berlin patient? With the two Boston patients, we think now maybe not. Maybe, again, we don't need CCR5 negative, neg negative cells. All we need is that allogeneic effect. So those are still critical questions. And how much conditioning do we need? Is there any role for conditioning to ablate the reservoir, like CD4 cells, uh, in these patients? And then I think where we need to go is we need to learn from this allogeneic effect. How can we use that allogeneic effect and make it safer, more practical for patients? We do this in cancer. And we've done transplantations for a long time. Now we take out T cells modify them genetically, so-called so chimeric antigen receptor modifications, and target them specifically for cells. It has also toxicities, but probably less toxic than trans, a full transplant. So I think we can learn a lot from these transplant studies and hopefully develop new therapies that are safer and, and uh, uh, associated with less side effects. Now, for the autologous setting, uh, I think we're, we're way up. We're obviously now uh, moving forward uh, many different 
uh, companies and centers are now moving forward using uh, genetically modified HIV-resistant cells in the autologous uh, setting. Um, obviously, this, uh, this technique um, has now the advantage that it really can, can use all these novel technologies and advances in cell engineering that come into play, so modifying and engineering their stem cell or T cell to make this, those cells resistant uh, to HIV. Uh, however, we do not know yet whether we can cure HIV with the autologous, in the, uh, with the autologous approach. Okay, so this is just a, a one last slide for the different studies. If you want to look up what kind of clinical studies we have in Seattle, either go to uh, defeathiv.org um, or you can go to our actually clinical um, site, which is uh, hivontrial.org, and just look what kind of trials we have in Seattle. I think that's my last slide. Oh, this is a picture when uh, Timothy was up with uh, Keith Jerome uh, in Seattle. And I think with this, we move on to the next speaker, and it's a great pleasure to introduce um, Mike McCune, um, who is uh, with the DARE Collaboratory uh, and is uh, the Division Chief of the uh, Experimental, of Experimental uh, Medicine, a professor of medicine here uh, at the University of UC That's San that. Francisco. Thank you. <clears throat> It's great to be here. I'd like to thank um, Serum and ARI and Gladstone for holding the meeting, and most especially all of you for coming to participate and listen. I've been here since 82 as a medical intern on the floors at the county, and, you know, that's when everybody came in, and every, as Paul will attest, everybody died. And one of the things that's happened over the past years, you know, is, one, we've made great progress, but the other thing that's really clear is that we've made it only because of participation by the community, teaching us how to work together. We'll talk about that more and also how to make progress. I'm here to introduce you to the uh, DARE Collaboratory, which is uh, named after one of my heroes, Marty Delaney, up there on the right, left, I guess, from you, um, and um, which is uh, directed by my friends uh, Stephen Deeks and Rafiq Sekouli as PIs and Brenda Leanne, who worked actually with Marty for a long time at Project Inform, and Lorraine Pearson um, as, a, as an administrator. I'll show some more pictures later. Uh, the next slide, please, Kevin. So the underlying hypothesis of this collaboratory, which was wisely put together, I think, by the NIH to be somewhat complementary to the other two efforts that you just um, heard about, is that uh, viral persistence while on antiretroviral ther therapy is driven in, by interactions that occur between the host immune system and HIV. And, and consequently, if that is the case, in order to get rid of HIV that's persistent, we'll have to treat both HIV and the host and understand what those interactions are. The next slide. The key questions that uh, we wish to ask, and you know, remarkably, uh, as Warner pointed out, we're, we're still trying to figure out where the persistent virus lives. Not a trivial task, given that peripheral blood is easily obtained, but organ systems are not. We want to understand why it persists and how to get rid of it. Uh, the cure word is used as a moniker, but really, in fact, we're talking about disease-free, drug-free remission, much as we talk about years of uh, drug-free life or cancer-free life in the setting of oncology. And the goal, uh, the next, next click, Kevin, animated slides, unfortunately, is to allow those uh, who are infected to live longer without the need for lifelong therapy. There are hurdles that we have to cross in the next slide, and I want to go through those uh, one by one quickly. First, of course, we need to understand the biology of the persistence. This is the science behind uh, the cure. 
The other tasks are things that we're not quite used to, but which are incredibly important. We need to talk about them. One is we need to form teams. That's one of the things that Marty taught us from the get-go, because scientists tend not to work together in teams, and this is a gargantuan task that's not going to happen with one scientist in one lab, but only through through the formation of multidisciplinary teams. We need to figure out which interventions work in the clinic. Again, not an easy thing to do. And once we figure that out, we need to know how to distribute those therapies around the world. 34 million people in the world infected with HIV, and most of those do not live in places where there is money or, for that matter, adequate health care. The, the goal that, um, in the next click, um, would be to find an intervention, I, I think, which is uh, safe, affordable, distributable around the world, easy to take, and that works. I mean, this, if you set it up as the icon where you want to go, can help to guide the science. Um, let me just talk through these different parts. So with respect to the science, how does HIV persist in the, effect, in the face of effective therapy? I'm going to run through very quickly a montage of ideas. And I, I show you these not so that I can teach you the granular details of them, but to show you the fact that there are now hypotheses about how HIV persists, and there are interventions that we can aim at these hypotheses. And to me, it's remarkable, having gone from 82 till now, to think that we can actually, in our hands and in our labs, talk about them. So the first, the first slide shows one that we've talked about already, which is that there might be a long-lived cell that's infected by HIV that lives for a long time with it that must be shocked or otherwise awaken. Warner talked a little bit about a second possibility, that those cells don't live for a long time but divide because they're influenced by host factors, interleukins, 15, 7, et cetera, to give one cell that dies and one that lives, essentially a cell that lives for a long time but that has to divide in order to do so. Another possibility is that we've known for a long time that HIV infects not simply T cells. It also infects cells that have CD4 that are in the so-called myeloid lineage, macrophages, dendritic cells we heard about. These cells are cells that can interact with T cells, and when they do so, they can cause persistence to, um, to be maintained. One is by creation of negative regulators. Um, one is called PD-1. There are other negative regulators or chemicals that are called chemokines that interact with T cells. And then also, as Warner showed in the next click, um, these cells are cells of the innate system whose job it is to create an inflammatory response against invading organisms, including things like HIV. And those inflammatory responses by pyroptosis or a variety of other mechanisms can allow for virus to persist. Also, next slide, the myeloid cell, the macrophage itself, can be infected. And when it is infected, there are data to show that HIV allows for it to live longer. So now we're not talking about simply T cells that are living for a long time with HIV, but also the myeloid series. And we need to, we need to figure out ways to, to handle that. And then finally, as we all know, patients with HIV in late-stage disease have a poor immune response, and the inability to respond against the persistent reservoir may allow it to persist, uh, consequently. Uh, we talk about vaccines. Now, all of these next click um, are hypotheses, no? Ineffective immune responses, cytokines, chemicals that allow for T cells to maintain persistent virus, inflammatory responses, et cetera. And you know what? There are chemicals that are out there to fight these chemicals, and they're in drug companies, and that's precisely why many of the collaboratories are working with uh, biopharmaceutical companies now. The next slide shows um, some of the ones that we've moved into, DARE, Um, including the inhibitors of HDAC that could allow for the latent virus to wake up, as well as inhibitors of interleukins, of chemokines, of enzymes that are involved in inflammation, and of of growth factors that can allow for, for macrophages to live for a long time. All of these are reagents that are in our hands now, 
and that can be tested for their ability to um, allow the persistent reservoir to go away. Next slide. The vision would be, as I think you've heard now, is that there would be patients who have HIV who are started on the right antiretroviral, antiretroviral regimen at the right time, uh, ideally sooner than later. There's likely to be more than one intervention that's provided, and after a time we, we, we would remove all of the therapies, hopefully for a longer period of time. Now, how do we make this happen? I, I, I think the science here is close, but the next slide... I think is, is probably the next step in terms of the difficulty of making it happen, and that is we need to form multidisciplinary teams. Marty taught us this from the 80s. It's not, again, something that scientists are normally taught to do. In the DARE collaboratory, the next slide, as in the other collaboratories, there's a wonderful team of scientists now spread across two different continents and 10 different projects that meet now on a routine basis and are talking about ideas that come from the experiments that I just showed you on a, on a, on a basis that is open and, and free of competition and really different from the, from the normal academic world. The next step from this will be, as we've begun to do already, is to take the three collaboratories that have been formed and to begin to draw intersects between them because each of the collaboratories is learning things that are complementary. And then finally on the next slide, we are not alone out there, right, working on trying to find a cure. There's organizations that are not-for-profits that are working on the adult cure. The Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation, barely seen there, is working on kids. We'll come back to them later. And, of course, there's many biopharmaceutical companies that need to come together to collaborate to find a cure. Next slide. To take the first step, we've done some with gene therapy, we've done some with allotransplants, there are some studies not all happening with the chemicals that I just showed you, but we need to move into clinical situations where we can do, do small data-intensive studies that show proof of concept. And luckily here in San Francisco, we have San Francisco General, and you know what, over the past 30 years, this place has been built in large part because of help from the community to be a space in which HIV disease can be studied, its progression can be studied, its treatment can be studied, and now I think its uh, cure can be studied. If we do that, and I think you know that is likely, a very difficult step is going to be distribution. How can we make sure that these interventions that we provide will get everywhere? If you show the next slide, the places where HIV resides now, as Warner mentioned, it's mostly in Africa. That's the map of the world distorted for the number of cases there, which is precisely in the next click where the money is not. So in order for us to get an intervention or a set of interventions, not just to the developing world, but to parts of our own country in which medical care is not provided in a, in a routine way. We're going to have to have a way of doing it that is, again, affordable, safe, uh, distributed to all, and efficacious. And that's going to take a totally new way of commercialization, I'm pretty sure. Now, is this doable? I think so, too. There's a lot of serious people working in serious rooms asking the question how to do this. It's not just relevant to HIV disease, but to other diseases as well. And you have to have hope, I think, that this can happen or else you wouldn't, you know, proceed going forward. I'll show you as a last slide something which uh, my daughter, Louise, made almost 13 years ago now. In the background, it says AIDS cure. It's not visible clearly, right, because it wasn't. And then she writes, later there will be a vaccine and a cure for the AIDS virus, and I will help make it. I mean, that, that is the kind of hope which will drive, I think, us to learning a lot about how to take care of HIV disease, hopefully to wipe out the epidemic completely. I'd like to stop and um, introduce Alan Townsend, who is uh, our, our, our host here tonight, is the president of CIRM. Thank you for...
Thanks very much, uh, Mike. And, and we'll be continuing the same sort of, basically the same sort of approach. Uh, if you take go to the next slide. The sermons established really is around uh, stem cells and, and how to utilise stem cells and really to target diseases. So um, what we're interested in is really targeting genes that that the virus really depends on. So if you can identify those genes and target them, and then on the stem cell side, utilise the blood stem cell and their properties to repopulate the whole bone marrow and refresh blood cells that are resistant to HIV infection or equip um, the cytotoxic lymphocyte to target and kill HIV-infected cells. So this is what we're about. We, uh, we at CERM, we're interested in in really curing HIV AIDS and we want to see take this kind of approach and this is this is the emblem that's been established there so um, <laughs> next one so what's critical here in for this virus is just shown here there's the virus uh, with the virus at the top and the cell membrane of, of the cell below the, the cell the way the virus has to interact with a blood cell requires that it it, it, it interacts at least in two major places, the CD4, which, which allows that virus to recognise the cell, and also, also a co-receptor called CCR5, and you've heard about that. So these, this, this CCR5 can become a target, and, and let me take you through that and just see where we get with, with, with this approach, and, and I think this will be nicely amplified in the next talk. So next, next slide. So... One in a hundred northern Europeans have this mutated gene, the CCR5 receptor, and they have complete protection against HIV if both of those genes are affected. Both of those genes are mutated. If one of them is mutated, then, then it takes a very long time for those patients to, to get the phenotype, the, the expression of, the, of, the, of AIDS after being infected with the virus. Now, if you take this picture here, and, and what it's showing you in the green dots is the large proportion of the population in, the, in Sweden, Estonia, Russia and Poland where this, where this, where this gene uh, is, is, is really at the highest incidence, incidence. And then if you look at the red dots, you'll see that sort of progressing downwards. That's that, the top, the green ones, is above 12%. The, the red dots, it's about 11 to 12, 8 to 12%. And then in the black dots further down in, in Spain and Bulgaria and Greece, it's dropped down to 0 to 6%. So you can see there, there, there is a distribution here of this, this very interesting complete resistance to, to HIV or AIDS. And, uh, you know, there are lots of different arguments about how this happened. And, and, uh, and many of those are played out in the literature. You can look in Google and, and, and work through this. It seems like it was, you know, close to the, the Vikings, and it was probably related to the Vikings moving in these these kind of directions. But there are other mathematics which suggest that this uh, this also had there's also resistance to other things. Other epidemics were at the time, and you might argue that Black Death or hemorrhagic plague might have played some part in this, in the timing. And it's interesting that. 
the CCR5 also provides very strong resistance to the Staphylococcus aureus, which is a necrotizing fasciolitis or flesh-eating bacteria. So that may have actually been helpful for people which had other diseases, that there was some resistance here. And, uh, and, and both the travelling of the, of the population uh, who, who then the gene is distributed and also if there's some advantage for having this particular mutation, then you'll see it, it spread. But it doesn't go anywhere into Africa, essentially, and it doesn't go any other place, right? So the distribution is, is very localised, globally localised. Um, one of the issues with, with, with one of the only issues that I know about, and I've talked with uh, Jeff uh, Sheehy a bit about this, is that the patients may be, may well be more more susceptible to the West Nile fever. So that's an issue that if you're going to do these kind of things, you need to be careful of what might spill over. But but I, I think we're probably not necessarily all that concerned about that, but it, but it, it is an issue if you're going to ta- change genes or, or affect the genetics of a population. So let's go on. So what we're doing at CIRM to do this, and this w- w- what I'm showing you here on the top is, is a chevron where we go from green, which is our really basic disease, through to the orange, which is our clinical research. So we've really only been effectively working for about eight years because the funding is only about eight or nine years old. So we're at that sort of eight-year phase, and it's really only in the last uh, uh, four years that we've really, three or four years that we've really been in any form of translation, which is that, which is the blue part where we're looking at preclinical research. So uh, we've had work at the at UCLA with Dr. Chen looking at genetic modification of hematopoietic blood cells, the, the stem cell population in blood, to resist HIV infection and disease progression. So that was back in uh, you know, a fairly basic study. Uh, we've also been funding Dr. DiGusto at the Beckman Institute of, at the City of Hope, looking at the development of RNA-based approaches to a combinatorial gene products. And I haven't listed those there because I was asked not to go too deep into the science, but these are a combination of genes here that prevent HIV infection. So using this combination through uh, an RAA-based approach looks interesting, may well get uh, to the clinic sooner or later. Uh, uh, Dr. Zach at the UCLA is using ear cells to blood cells with a combination gene expression that are resistant to HIV. Again, reprogramming hemopoietic stem cells with a CAR, a chimeric antigen receptor, to eradicate HIV infection. So now this is interesting and I think important technology. So you're going into the hemopoietic stem cell again, but what you're doing is arming that cell with a killer capacity, being able to kill cells that have been infected by HIV cells, right? There's a real, you're arming the system with a T cell that is viciously effective against that chimeric antigen that you actually engineer into it. And I'll come back in a moment and say why I think that's so important. Dr. John, John Zier, who is again at the Beckman Institute at the City of Hope, he's, he's working on the mutation of the CCR5 gene uh, in hemopoietic stem cells using a zinc finger nuclease technology. And this is the Sangamo technology where you go in and you mutate that uh, CCR5 gene and produce the situation that you see in those resistant populations. 
And then Dr. Chen, who, who's working together with Callum Yoon, had a, an, an RNA uh, approach to a knockdown in CCR5, so the ability to knock down that gene product, and also included viral fusion proteins to hemopoietic stem cells to prevent viral entry. And, and, and that has sort of gone on to the Calamune study. Calamune was part of that work and has gone on to the Calamune study that Lewis Britton is going to talk to you about after me, right? I'm not going to talk more about that because he's going to, he's going to give you, fill you in on that. But this is what it is. We're, what, what we're after is, is give it, seeing if we can create that population that lives in, in, in northern Europe with a, with, with a mutated CCR5 gene which allows them to live a completely normal life in every other way and, uh, and, and perhaps also arm them with T-cells which will really go after any infected cells that are, that are left in the body. Next slide. So if you look at this, this is sort of now jumped around. I think something's happened to my slide. And maybe it's the... Uh, anyway, the, no, go to the next. It, it's not quite as it was. So the hemopoietic stem cell can be either... It can either be genetically manipulated using short hairpin RNAs, as, as, as Lewis is going to describe to you, the calamune approach, or the zinc figure nuclease can be used to go in and, and, and target that gene, cut the gene, specifically at the CCR5, and break it up so that it's then a mutated gene. So what happens there is that all of the cells that progress from the hemopoietic stem cell, as you, you heard from Mike, will, downstream of that will then will, will all be will be carrying that, carrying that resistance. So the T cells cannot be any longer infected by HIV viruses, nor can the macrophages. But what you want to do also, I think, is turn those T cells in, from being victims into aggressors. I mean, these T cells shouldn't be pussycats in this disease. They should get out and do their job. And so if you come in with this CAR TCR, the, 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 the T cell receptor technology, you can arm those T cells again by entry through the hemopoietic stem cell, arm them with a capacity to get, be vigilant in the body and make sure that cells that are there are going to get, are going to get terrified, they're going to get killed, they're going to get eaten, they're going to be destroyed. So... So we so we do it on, if we did it on both hands if it's necessary, we we don't know which which will be necessary till we get through all of the clinical trials. It may be enough just to be to be able to mutate that CCR5 gene and a fusion gene. It it, it might not be enough. Uh, and if it's not, then we ought to be able to use that car technology again to to arm the system. So uh, the next slide. Oh, there's the zinc finger nuclease jumping in there late. I, I think, uh, I think as Warner Green said, th this is a world problem. And so, if we're able to get an effective technology going and developed here, with whatever approach we take, we really need to get out and eradicate this disease from the rest of the world. Because while it's harboured even outside our, ourselves or our country, you, you know, you've got to actually attack the, the source of this particular disease and, and we've actually got to take these treatments to, to Africa. So I'd say uh, let's eradicate H, uh, the, the AIDS uh, virus So let's eradicate the damn thing from the world um, and it may take time to do that but, but let's hope that this is a, a beginning 
one of these or several of these technologies will evolve to do that. And it's not going to be, it shouldn't be peace for any of us until it's really done. So uh, that's my bit, uh, Kevin, and, and I'd like to introduce. Uh, uh, my friend Lewis Breton from Calamune, who's the CEO of Calamune, to give you the, the real frontline stories of <laughs> where, where our, our partnership is. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here tonight, certainly with this distinguished panel. Um, I think we should take just a step back, and I'd, I'd like to just emphasize one thing. Uh, California is really at the forefront of this type of research. And if you look at the uh, groups that have presented tonight, um, they are connected to the world, truly. Um, but it's because of the quiet uh, as well as not-so-quiet efforts of multiple people and some of the quiet heroes in this room that have actually made it possible for some of the institutions to get the type of money necessary to combat this disease. It is an enormous effort. And uh, when you see all the lines that are connected and all the different pieces of the puzzle, you begin to see just how many people are working on it around the world. Um, but truly, oftentimes, it's the, uh, the quiet times in the laboratory that don't necessarily get celebrated when something new happens. What's nice is uh, there was something that was heard. It was the shot, potentially, that was heard around the world in regards to the Berlin patient, and you've all heard a lot about that tonight. I'm not going to go into all the details, but um, it really changed the face of the way that people began looking at this disease as the possibility of a cure. Uh, when uh, when Alan shared with you that, uh, that we really need to fight and cure this disease and that it is curable, those are the things that keep, I'm sure, many of us up at night. So um, I'd like to share a bit about Calamune, but uh, tonight I also want to just give you a bit of background about where the field of gene medicine has really come, and it's come a long ways. It's, uh, it's been about two decades. Uh, a lot of work uh, specifically into the Calamune approach came from about a decade and a half of work from Dr. David Baltimore and Irvin Chen's lab. If you would go to the next slide. Uh, the slide before that. Great. So uh, I, I thought that this, this quote was appropriate for tonight. It says, in unconventional warfare, it's critical to keep focus on the goal, not strictly the enemy. Um, a lot of people, as, as you had heard, in the early days of HIV, it was to target HIV, try to destroy it. HIV has figured out lots of different ways to mutate, go around all the, the wonderful drugs, and they are, uh, they are lifesavers, truly. Um, but it's also important to understand that we're looking to protect the host. And um, back in the late 80s, Dr. David Baltimore came up with the term intracellular immunity. The idea was if you could figure out a way to block uh, or uh, change a particular gene in order to block HIV, you'd be able to protect the cells and potentially the immune system long term. That's really where uh, our work starts. So our strategy is to protect the immune system. Um, we're really looking at this first step. I know tonight is about cure, but there's a big step in between that. And the step is to potentially free HIV patients from a lifetime of being on drugs. This is, um, this is a goal of many of us in this room, and it would be an extraordinary feat. 
We are clinically developing Cal-1. There have been multiple people talking about autologous cell therapy. This is a patient's own cells that would be treated, their stem cells and their T cells, and given back to them that have been modified in two different ways, and I I will share with you what those are. Um, We're looking at the prospect of what it's going to take to optimize this. What is it going to take to scale it? How is it going to be cost-effective? First, we have to work on efficacy, and then we work on efficiency. But in many ways, we've had to consider these and bring these into the processes that we've been working on, even in the preclinical stages. People have been talking about collaboration. We are a relatively small biotech company, and um, we have over 35 different uh, uh, institutions that we're working with, academic institutions as well as hospitals, um, and now reaching out as well to, uh, to other commercial groups. Uh, we've continued to develop next-gen products, recognizing that this is a process, and it's not going to end with just the, uh, the prospects of bringing a patient off of therapy. And, of course, um, we've talked about harnessing really world-class cross-disciplinary technology. There are so many advancements that have happened in uh, stem cell biology, in virology, in, in the prospects even of transplant that are changing the way that people are looking at uh, the, the ability to target this disease, and, uh, and, and it's necessary for that for breakthroughs. And, of course, we will not stop. This is our sole focus as a company until we eradicate HIV-AIDS. Next slide. So this is the therapy that we uh, just recently brought into the clinic. There are two active entry inhibitors. As uh, Alan was alluding to, we, we have an SHRNA to CCR5 to downregulate CCR5, as well as block fusion. Uh, we've been able to show that it's, it works synergistically together. Um, we, uh, we've been able to also show that it's been active against all the forms of HIV that we've thrown at it so far, but of course, those were all preclinical tests. We've got a lot of animal data, and in fact, this is a really important factor. You want to make sure that it's safe, as safe as possible before you take the next steps, and certainly in gene medicine, that's, that's one of the, the critical steps for us. Um, We have seen that it mitigates against resistance of HIV-1 in tested models. And in this particular case, the idea is to provide enough cells to the patient that they have a strong enough immune system to stave off any of the the problems with, uh, with, with infections and opportunistic diseases. So we have uh, two active sites in California that are recruiting. Quest is one of them. The other one is at UCLA. Uh, we're we're going to be treating three different cohorts of patients. And a very important element here is how many cells is required to put back into the patient in order to have an impact. We want the most possible. And one of the pieces to that puzzle is to provide a level of conditioning that allows those cells to go back into the marrow and contribute long-term to the patient. And so we are testing different uh, doses of busulfan, which is a uh, conditioning regimen to do that. Next slide. So you you saw uh, a number of diagrams today, so I'm going to breeze through this quickly. Um, There's a process of apheresis where we actually collect the blood. Uh, Then we will separate it out, uh, separating out the stem cells and the T cells, modifying those, cryopreserving those, and then uh, 
having the patient take the, the busulfan here is, uh, is prior to treatment, and depending on the regimen, uh, depends on how many days of that treatment, patient will come in, receive their cells back. The, uh, the thaw process is very short, um, but of course the monitoring for patients is quite long. And in fact, for gene medicine, it's 15 years. So um, we have a tremendous responsibility in this, uh, in this community to provide uh, support for the patients once we've treated them. Next slide, please. So I'd like to just finish up here with, with just some thoughts. This is a, um, a question that everybody has been asking is, is are we there yet? Are, are, we, are we right there? And then the answer is, is we're getting there. We're, we're not quite there yet. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And in fact, clinical studies have their, their intricacies, as you know. You have to deal with regulatory bodies. The international bodies don't always work together well. And in fact, the guidelines are not always consistent. So what we do know, though, is that there have been a lot of patients that have been treated, and there's a lot of information that has been provided as support for our next steps. Over 220 patients that have been HIV positive uh, have been treated with gene medicine over the course of the last 20 years. We know that stem cells and T cells can be harvested and, and gene modified and, and given back to the patients. We know that monotherapy is likely not sufficient to prevent resistance. We know this because the drugs have shown us this as well, uh, but it's also been conclusive in some of the approaches that people have been taking. There's encouraging results from other studies, uh, including what uh, Sengamo is doing as well as what Patskoff has done, showing that if you have enough cells, HIV can be used as selective pressure in order to provide support for the immune system for those that are modified. And ultimately, um, uh, Dave D'Augusto, which is part of the City of Hope group and the like, ended up publishing on the fact that you can increase engraftment through um, use of, of different types of regimens, including conditioning. So uh, in just summary here, I'd like to, to thank everybody uh, for coming together. This is um, it's a really extraordinary time period, I believe, in the fight against HIV. Um, the war is certainly not over. But, um, but the forces have continued to recombine, come back together, and uh, are fighting hard in the effort of actually taking care of this disease. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.